presents Jesus as a savior king who conquers uh, demons, disease, and death. And, And how timely is that today? We need someone who conquers demons, disease, and death. You know, it's been all around us this last year. Disease and death. The emphasis on Jesus' mighty and miraculous miracles is what makes this gospel exciting, it's fresh and dramatic. And, And we need that in our life today. We need it to be exciting. And I don't mean because we travel and we do this and we do that, we go and get entertained. We need Jesus to excite us. We need a fresh outpouring of his spirit in our life. We need you know, a, a dramatic Christ-driven and Christ-led life. Mark constantly uses the present tense to give us the impression that, that, that Mark has given us the impression that he's reporting what's happening like he was giving an eyewitness account of an on-the-spot reporter of what Jesus is doing. You see, and Mark wants, us, wants to transform the believers with his report. He's not reporting these things just to inform them. We do need to in, be informed, but may that information that we receive lead to transformation. That's what we need more than anything. Transformation. Becoming like Christ more and more. Not only that, his eyewitness accounts give a lot of detail in his reporting. He details emotional responses of Jesus and others. He reports the sizes and the reactions of the crowds. He reports the appearance of men and women. Like the story of the Gadarene demoniac. That's an, it's an example of Mark's attention to detail. He uses 20 verses to tell the story of the Gadarene demoniac. 20 verses. Luke uses 14 verses. Matthew writes only 7 verses to describe that incident. And yet Mark's gospel is the shortest of all three gospels. Because you see, he leaves out Jesus' longer sermons. So in general, Mark describes the miracle-working Jesus, not the teaching Jesus. In Matthew's Gospel, he presented Jesus as the King, the Messiah of Israel. And that's why there was a genealogy proving Jesus to be the Son of David. And this also tells us why there were many references to and quotations from the Old Testament. But Mark was called to show us the Christ. Mark was called to show us the Son of God as the humble and devoted, perfect servant who was in total subjection to the Father. Mark shows Jesus busy, going from place to place as his Father directed him. Because you see, we're not concerned about his lineage, but his ability That's why there's no genealogy. Just a record of of Jesus' activity in doing good and making known the mind of God. Mark uses the word immediately 41 times. Think of that. He uses the word immediately 41 times 
And it's and it, and it's used about that many times in the rest of the New Testament. Immediacy. So you can take that as, as, as a lesson. Immediacy in serving Christ is important. Immediacy in making decisions for Christ is important. The king's business, Jesus' business, requires promptness. And Jesus was always busy. Another lesson for us to take from this. We are to be busy in the service of God. Jesus was always busy in the great work which he came into the world to do. Immediacy and busyness or service for Christ. Mark's greatest object of his gospel was to show the Gentile world, that is the world, those that weren't Jews, his object, Mark's object was to show the Gentile world the living love of God in Jesus Christ. Serving the needy, seeking out sinners, and saving all who trusted in him. If this was the only gospel in the New Testament, if it was the only gospel, there would be enough in the gospel of Mark to show anybody who had, trouble, who had a troubled heart and a troubled mind the way of life and the way of peace. Now, John Mark was the son of a wealthy woman, <clears throat> maybe a widow. And her home was used for the early church, the early disciples to meet in. Mark's gospel was written between A.D. 55 through 65. The setting was the Roman Empire under Tiberius Caesar. The empire had a, had a common language, great transportation, and, 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 and great communication systems. That made it ripe. To hear Jesus' message which spread quickly from nation to nation. The intended readers were the Gentile Christians. Again, those who weren't Jews. And especially the Romans. Mark's Gentile readers faced persecution and martyrdom. Mark wrote his gospel to strengthen and guide Roman believers through Nero's terrible persecutions. First of all, for Mark's readers to know that Jesus also suffered. But they also needed to know that after Jesus' suffering, he had triumphed over both suffering and death. And after the death of Peter and other eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, this gospel message, Mark's gospel message, needed to be written down. So Mark wrote the story down in order to verify these truths and to make a way to pass them on to new generations of believers. Now Mark was the nephew of Barnabas. Mark went with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, at least as far as Perga. But when they got there, that's where Mark left them. And he went back to Jerusalem. Because Mark seems to have become disillusioned about missionary work and troubled about the things that he saw going on. There was persecution. There was risk of life. And later on, when Paul talked about, uh, to Barnabas about taking a second missionary trip, Barnabas said, yeah, he agreed. But Barnabas wanted to take his nephew Mark again. And no doubt, Barnabas tried to talk Paul into having him go. That, that, that his nephew was sorry for what had happened. And uh, Mark learned his lesson and he felt that you know, his, ne his nephew should get a second chance. Paul said, no way. <laughs> Nope. Paul was a tough cookie. And as a result, Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement and a falling out. And they parted their ways. 
But later on, Mark and Paul, they reconciled. And they worked in ministry together again. And Mark became a trusted minister of Christ and companion of Paul and Peter. So with that little introduction, let's begin now with chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Notice how Mark begins. I mean, right away, he introduces the servant of Jehovah God. And then he tells us in just a few words of his forerunner and his baptism and temptation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is God's good news about his blessed son who came in through the world to show his heart to mankind and to offer himself as a sin offering for our redemption. Verse 2 and 3. And he goes on, he says, As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. In Malachi 3.1 is predicted the coming of the messenger, speaking of John the Baptist, who was to come before the Lord. And he was to prepare the people for Christ's coming. It says this messenger was the voice crying in the wilderness as predicted in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. Calling on Israel to prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Here we have a clear admission about the deity of Christ. Prepare the way of the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the name for Jehovah. And it was saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Again, Jesus Christ, Jehovah, and make his path straight. So again, a clear admission of the deity of Christ. He... Christ, who came in such meekness and lowliness, was the everlasting one. Isaiah called him the everlasting father, who himself, who humbled himself in order to unite, bring together his deity, that is his godhood, with our humanity. It was to merge God and man together, but apart from man's sin. So that Jesus might become our kinsman redeemer and purchase us. Purchase our deliverance from sin's bondage and the judgment of hell that we're due. Verses 4 and 5. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, John the Baptist came baptizing. He came preaching repentance in the wilderness of Judea. He was was baptizing those who had confessed their sins and repented. And it's important to, uh, to to remember that order. Multitudes of people went out to the Jordan River from all their surrounding areas and they were baptized in response to the message that John was giving. You see, their baptism wasn't anything that was praiseworthy of themselves. All right? It wasn't something praiseworthy that they were doing. It was a result of confession of their sins and then they got baptized and that's the order. There are those who think that if you get baptized, you know, you're saved and you're going to heaven. No, you need, you need to confess your sins, seek the forgiveness of Christ, you know, work on the cross and once you do that, then you get baptized. Baptism is an outward display of an inward change. 
All right? Baptism does not save you. It just says, I am now born again and I have received Christ. It's a, it's a symbol of going down into the grave under the water. And when you come up, you're a new creature. The sins, the old life are dead in the grave. They're under the water in a sense. And now you come up in the newness of life. So again, baptism is just an outward display of an inward change. That is that Christ has come into the life. Baptism was the acknowledgement that they accepted the message of John the Baptist, of Christ. And they acknowledged they needed cleansing. And they acknowledged they needed forgiveness in spite of the fact, listen to this. They had to walk some 20 miles and go down 4,000 feet to hear John preach. Some people won't drive 20 minutes to hear somebody preach. They walked 20 miles and went down cliffs, 4,000 feet to hear John preach the gospel. John's message and baptism were preparation so that the people would be ready when the Messiah came, when Jesus came and began to preach. Verse 6. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. I mean, I bet you he was quite a Quite a sight to see when you finally saw, you know, John the Baptist. Verse 7. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, uh, whose sandal uh, strap I am not worthy to stoop down and to loose. John uh, wasn't talking about himself. He was trying to bring attention to him. Uh, He was not trying to bring attention to himself, but he was preaching about the one who was coming. And John says, man, this, this, this one that is coming, I'm not even worthy to tie or to loosen his shoestrings, his sandal strings. It was, the, it was a slave's duty to carry their master's sandals and to tie them or to loosen them. But John felt, man, I'm not even worthy to do that. And that, has become, and that is because he says, my baptism is the baptism of repentance. Look at verse uh, 8 now. He says, indeed, I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. or tie. He says, that's because my baptism is the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. I'm the one doing the baptizing. But the one who is going to come, the one who is coming, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So the second baptism is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. That is a baptism of power. And that's why we need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We need power to, to, to be Christians. We need power to get victory over temptations and, and trials and afflictions in our life. We need power to be a witness and to share the gospel with people. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, he told the disciples, he says, I want you to go to Jerusalem and I want you to stay there until you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be witnesses unto me. Notice. You need to go there. You need to receive the power only of the Holy Spirit. And then you can be witnesses to me. Because you're going out to a hateful and, 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 and you know, dangerous people. They're going to come against you, some of them. And that word power there is dunamis. That's the Greek word where we get the word dynamite. So you need to go and re- receive the dynamite power of the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus here is the baptizer, John says. He will baptize you. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So the thought is, in water baptism, you're just submerged in water. But Jesus is emerging us in the Holy Spirit as he baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. Verses 9 through 11. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. And he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Here you have the baptism of Jesus. You also have uh, a picture here of the Trinity. Because in verses 9 through 11, you see Jesus named, you see the Holy Spirit named, and you see the Father speaking from heaven. So when you want to reference, uh, if you're sharing with somebody about the Trinity, you can, you, this is one of many verses, you know, but I always mark all my verses that, that you know, show the Trinity. So you have the Trinity here as well. But John here is baptizing Jesus in the Jordan. And then it says, coming up out of the water, it says, the heavens are open. The Spirit spirit descends upon him like a dove. And then the Father speaks from heaven and identifies his beloved Son. The question is, a lot of people ask, why did Jesus have to be baptized? He didn't have any sins. He didn't need, so he didn't need to confess anything. So why did he have to be baptized? Because Jesus knew it was the Father's will. Now, always keep in mind, when we see Jesus walking on earth and, and, and ministering on earth, he came, though he was all God, he came to, to, to show men, all right? He came to demonstrate God and who God is in the person of Christ, all right? So he came to be obedient to the Father and to show men what men were supposed to be like and how they were to live for God upon this earth. So just so Jesus received baptism again because it was the Father's will. Why was he baptized? To identify with men even in death. Being baptized was an act where he agreed to take his place among sinners. Jesus could identify himself with sinful humanity. And Jesus fulfilled every religious duty in order that he might be a perfect sacrifice. Jesus identified himself with publicans and sinners like you and me, the very people that he came to save. He identified himself with us. Verse 12 and 13. Immediately, now notice, right after he has this wonderful spiritual experience of the Spirit coming down upon him and the Father saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Then the next word is immediately the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, drove him into the wilderness and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. Now Matthew 4, you have a detailed description of all the temptations. You see, and that's the difference here. Mark is just telling us what happened, but he does not give him the detail. But Jesus goes immediately from the experience of baptism to temptation, that is a testing in the wilderness. Jesus goes from a mountaintop experience to a valley of testing. You know, a lot of Christians begin their Christian life with a rush. Man, an excitement. 
You just don't, you just can't stop telling people about Jesus and what has happened in your life. You're on fire. And then comes the time when you're to take that fire and all of that excitement, all of that love that you have for Jesus and it has to be put to the test. It's time to grow now. And God gives you that part of excitement and learning and growing. And then, you know what? Now it's time to be tested. To go through the fire, to be refined. Jesus went now. He's, he's been baptized in the Spirit. He's ready for ministry. You see, God doesn't save us to sit. He saves us to serve. He empowers us. He equips us. He gives us the word, the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, now go. Now go and let's do something. Jesus goes immediately from the experience of baptism to, to ministry. Like I said, many Christians, they, they, they have this rush, they, they have this, they're on fire, and then comes the wilderness experience for them. And all of a sudden, they start to doubt, and they start to wonder. And many Christians soon find out that following Jesus uh, didn't quite turn out the way they thought it was. It didn't quite meet their expectation. And I wonder if that probably would have happened to, 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 to Mark. He's all excited about going out with Paul and, and, his, and his uncle Barnabas and they're going to go and minister the gospel. They're going to win people to Christ and they get out there and, they, and John finds out, well, some of these people are pretty mean, pretty hateful. Some of them even want to kill us. And he might have gotten doubtful and, and, you know, and, and it was disillusioned and just thought, you know, now this ain't for me and, and turned back and he left. And that happens to a lot of Christians. They feel confused and they're disappointed. And, they, and then they walk off and go, you know, well, I, you know, I tried, it, I tried being a Christian one time. It, it just didn't work out. But again, that's part of the Christian life. It, it tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 11, when, when, when Moses told the people that, that where they were going, it says, the land which you cross over to possess is a land of hills and valleys. All right? You guys are going to go possess a land that is a land of hills and valleys, representing the highs and the lows. Because as a Christian, you know, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know there are the highs and the lows. But... Again, and I've said this before, very little fruit is grown on mountaintops. It's in the valleys where the fruit is grown. You know, way back many years ago, I used to live about an hour from Bakersfield. And Kathy and I, and we'd take the kids, they used to, we used to go to Bakersfield and you know, you'd have all the valleys out there where they grew a lot of fruit and vegetables and they had, you know, along, I think it was the five out there, you had the, the fruit stands and the vegetable stands and you could go buy the fruit and some places you could go pick it. And that was, that was fun for the kids. But where, the, where, it was gro- where it was grown, it was all in the flatland. It was all in the valleys. Rarely did I, I don't, you never did I go up to the top of mountains or climb mountains to go pick fruit or vegetables. The valley is where the fruit is going. And that's where you and I grow. It's when we're in those valleys. You know why? Because we depend upon God more. We call upon him more. We need him more. Not that we don't need him or should call upon him any less because things are going good. But that seems to be where we call upon him. Where we want him more and need him more. 
And that's where we learn. And that's why God allows us to go to the valleys. It's not because he's mean to us or we've messed up or we deserve, you know, or, or, you know, it's because he says, I need to send you there so you can grow. Because you see, if you, if you don't go to the valley places, how are you going to know that the things I tell you are true? To pray and to receive victory and to conquer. That's where you grow. And, and, and it's in the valleys where the fruit is grown. Christ's great mission was to oppose and defeat Satan's kingdom, showing, showing his authority. Jesus had a job to do and he immediately went to do it again. He went from, from verse 12 to, uh, from, from verse 11 to verse 12. It, from, from a high point, just boom, he went to ministry. Right away. He went to do ministry. He went to do what the Father called him to do. Verses 14 and 15. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus left Judea and he goes to Galilee because Herod had arrested John the Baptist. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now this wasn't a political kingdom. It was a spiritual kingdom that was to reign and to rule in the lives of the people's hearts. When Jesus came to Galilee, he was preaching the kingdom of God. He said, it's at hand. What he was saying is that the kingdom of God has come close to men in the person of Christ. Jesus, coming out of heaven, taking on the form of man, that's where he's saying that, that the kingdom of God has come close to men in the person of Christ. In his person, the kingdom of God is actually confronting men. In other words, when Jesus came down and he says that, 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 that the kingdom of God is at hand, he said, here I am, people. Now, what are you going to do with me? And that's the question that, that every living soul needs to answer. Jesus said, here I am. What are you going to do with me? Jesus' first words, like John, was repent. Which means a radical change of mind and to turn to God and to believe in him. Now, repentance by itself isn't enough to save us. Even though God expects us to turn away from our sins. You see, it's not just what you separate yourself from, but it's also who you separate yourself to. Because again, I'm able to separate myself from from things, but if I haven't separated myself to one who can keep me from sin, then I'm going to go right back to it. I'm going to go right back to the old vomit. We must also put positive faith in Jesus Christ and believe his promise of salvation. Because repentance without faith can become regret. I can repent, which is basically without faith, it was really remorse, it's regret for what I did or I got caught doing it. But I don't have forgiveness. And regret can destroy people who carry a burden of guilt. Because I haven't received true forgiveness for my sins. Verses 16 through 20. And as he, speaking of Jesus, as Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. 
When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants, and they went after him. In these verses, we see the beautiful call to service. Now, Jesus here calls four fishermen to follow him. Now, according to John chapter 21 and verses 1 through 3, Jesus had four fishermen for sure and possibly seven men in the group of disciples who were professional fishermen. Now, why would Jesus call so many fishermen to follow him? Well, one reason is fishermen were busy people. They were professional fishermen. They usually did not sit around doing nothing. They either sorted their catch, that is the different fish that they had, they either sorted them out, or they would be preparing for the next fishing trip, or they'd be fixing their equipment, like their nets, they'd be mending their nets. You see, those are the kind of people Jesus needs, busy people, people who are not afraid to work, Another reason Jesus picked fishermen, because they're courageous. You know, we read about the storms out on the Sea of Galilee when they'd be fishing. And, you know, they'd be out there. They'd go out there knowing that, hey, any, a storm could kick up at any time. They could overturn the boat. We could lose our lives. But they went out there. They were courageous. And they were patient people. And if any of you are fishermen or fisherwomen, you know it takes patience to sit and to sit, and to sit. I've had my wife go with me fishing before. About 20 minutes. Are you done yet? You haven't caught anything. I go, I've just barely threw my line in. She goes, and then another hour or two. How can, I don't understand how you guys can sit out here for hours and not catch anything. What a waste of time. And I guess it could be, but, you know, if you like fishing, you'll do it. I, you know, I've sat in a boat for hours all day and not caught anything, but I love it. I love being out there. It's just, you know, it's just something fisher, fishermen like to do. But, I mean, it is some, a characteristic of being a fisher. You, you have to be patient. That's what it's called fishing. You're, you're fishing for something and hoping you catch it. But for these guys, it was more their, it was their livelihood. I, you know, we do it for recreation for the most part. It definitely takes patience. It definitely takes courage to win others to Christ. It takes patience because you, know, you keep witnessing, you, sh- you keep being an example a- a- around these folks and, and, and you, you pray that they become a Christian. And, and to, it takes courage because sometimes you witness the people and they want to knock your block off. They don't want to hear it. They want to push you over the balcony. And I, I think of that because I felt that when I was in the service and these two guys came witnessing to me. We were standing on this balcony. I go, in my, I said, I want to push these guys over the, over the top here. I didn't want to hear it. So, you know, you, you know it, it also, it, again, it, it takes the patience and it takes the courage to win Christ. Fishermen have to have skill. They have to learn from others where to find the fish. They didn't have fish finders like you do today. They had to learn a skill. They had, they had to have skill. They had to learn where to find the fish and how to catch them. Winning souls takes this kind of skill as as well. You have to have courage. You have to have the ability to work with other people. You have to have patience. You have to have the energy. 
you have to have the endurance and, and, and the work of the Lord requires cooperation. You see, they couldn't afford the fisher, they couldn't afford to be com- to, uh, quitters or complainers. But I think one of the biggest demands is, fi- uh, is faith because fishermen can't see the fish. They're not sure that their nets are going to catch them. And winning souls for Jesus Christ takes faith and it takes alertness as well or we will fail. And how much more important is it for us to not quit? Because what we're looking to catch is a lot more important spiritually speaking, eternally speaking, than the fish of the fishermen. And because Jesus spoke with authority, think of it too, he was able to call men to leave regular jobs and make them his disciples. Who else could do that kind of a thing? Who else could could interrupt four fishermen on their job and challenge them to leave their job and to follow him and change their lives forever? Here's Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee. He sees these two guys, Simon, which is Peter. He sees Simon and then he sees his brother Andrew. And he says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. You know, I've read this verse many times, but this, this time it, it just really dropped a bomb on me, if you will. But you notice it says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. It wasn't that, that they would be fishers of men overnight. It wouldn't be because they dropped what they were doing and followed them that they would automatically have and, de- have and be everything they need to be to catch men. Jesus, I will make you become a process. In other words, they had a lot to learn about being fishers of men, as the word become suggests. It doesn't happen overnight, which shows us the real purpose for calling these men. Jesus, here's it. Jesus calls men and women. So when I'm saying men, I'm just, I'm, I'm speaking of both men and women. He calls them not so much for what they are as for what he's able to make them become. He's not looking for ability as much as he is availability. He can make you become whatever he needs you to be. And you know, I, I swore I, would, I, I could never do something like this. Because I cannot, I do not like speaking in front of people. And I was willing to take a demotion at work because being a supervisor... And there were several of us and they said, you know, we're, you know, we want you supervisors to start uh, doing, uh, um, you know, um, production meetings. You know, with graphs and telling the, all the departments, you know, where you are and your, your successes and, and where you need it. And I go, I, I can't do it. And my, my director said, well, you know, this is what we're requiring supervisors to do. And, and if you don't want to do that, you, you may lose your position. I thought, I don't care. I am not going to speak in front of people. No way, shape, or form. It was hard enough getting me to wear a tie as a supervisor. But here I am speaking in front of people and, and I still like it, but God's made it, God's made it where I can do it. 
Like I said, he, and when I said, Lord, you know, whatever, whatever he'll, he said, okay, well, let's, 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 let's put you out in front of people. And, and, it, and it's whatever God wants you to do. Don't, don't fear that. God gives you the ability. He takes away the fears. And, and, and when I say that, so that you can do it. It's not that I don't fear because I always come up here knowing that, that this is God's pulpit and that these are God's people. And I'm going to answer to him. And so, again, he's looking for, like I said, availability more than ability. Because he can make you able to do anything. That's the power of God. Things that you thought you could never do. And so, again, he's able to make them become whatever he needs. And immediately it says, those men dropped what they were doing and they followed Jesus. It says, Jesus walks a little further. He sees two more brothers, James and John. It says in verse 19, they're mending their nets. And I love this. It says, Jesus calls them and they immediately. That's what blows me away, immediately. A lot of times, oh, you know what? I, I, I need to go pray a month or two and find out if, I remember Pastor Chuck says, that when God calls you, unless you have a reason to say no, then you go. Unless you have a reason to say no, then you go. Jesus called them and they immediately left what they were doing. And it says, and they left their father and the hired servants and they followed Jesus. So Peter and Andrew left their means of livelihood. Peter and Andrew did it for a living. This is how they lived. James and John left their father. And probably a good business indicated by the fact they had servants. And when I say they left... that he, they left their father. A lot of times, that they, people think that that's a ban- they're abandoning, or when you when they say you know, leave their family, it's a aban- no. I'm not talking about abandonment. I'm saying that God's calling us, and and if if God says puts on your heart to go, let's say somebody be a missionary, and you're going out of country, are you willing to do that? It may it may require leaving my family. You know for a while and going to be a missionary. Am I willing to do that? And that's the key. That's really what's being talked about here. All right? It was then and it still is today a costly choice to be a servant because you don't know where and what Jesus might ask you to do or where he might ask you to go. So it was costly then just like it's costly now. It's a costly choice but not any more so with any follower of the Lord. Each of them, notice Simon, uh, Peter, and, and Andrew, and, and James, and John, they, you know, they, they, they left. Each of them left all that they had. And you know what? That's always the minimum requirement for the Christian. Leaving all that you have. Jesus said in Luke 14, 33, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And again, is there a willingness to follow Jesus wherever he might lead? Verse 21 through 28. Then they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? 
Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and he said, Be quiet and come out of him. And when this unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. So here we see Jesus casts out demons. He casts out demons. Jesus not only ministered out in public, but also in the synagogue as well. Jesus honored the synagogue by going to the synagogue. And when he taught the word of God, the people were astonished, verse 22 said, at his authority. They weren't just astonished with the doctrine he was, he was teaching and how he was teaching, but, um, um, uh, I'm sorry, the doctrine and what he taught, but they were more especially uh, blown away because of the way he taught. In other words, his word carried authority. And you know, when you preach God's word and you're witnessing people and you're using God's word, you are always right. When people want to argue with him and say, you know what? And I've told you're wrong. You're flat out wrong. The Bible says. And whenever you are quoting scripture, you are always right. Do not be afraid. When people, no, no, that, no, no. And don't be afraid to tell them you're wrong. Show me, show me your... Show me your evidence. Show me where where you're coming. The Bible says that settles it. And so, again, uh, Jesus, they, they were blown away because Jesus spoke with authority. He wasn't just repeating something that he heard from other religious leaders. He wasn't repeating ideas. He heard like what they had with the scribes. It was the word of God. It was coming from the heavens. Verse 23. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit and he cried out. This tells you that Satan goes to church. He went to church in this man's body. Satan loves going to church. He loves to see what chaos he can stir up. He loves to see how he can confuse you and and, and deceive you and, and get you off track. The thought of Satan and demon possession is many times looked at as, as just a myth or it ain't real. Satan's just a joke. He's just a cartoon character. And I'm sure it pleases, it, nothing pleases Satan more than, than, be, than to be thought of as a myth and a joke and a cartoon character. But he recognized Jesus. Look at 24 and 25. Satan says, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. Notice the question the demon asked. What have we to do with you? You see, the demon had nothing in common with Jesus. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness and what accord has Christ with Belial or Satan? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? See, Paul said, you know, you know, not to be unequally yoked. A believer and an unbeliever don't have any fellowship. Our part with an unbeliever is to witness to them, is to share the gospel with them. But we can't have fellowship with them because there's, there's nothing in common. Shouldn't be anyway. Satan said, I know who you are. 
Now, see, that tells us that you can have a knowledge of Christ and still be lost. Just because Satan said, I know who you are, he wasn't saved. But people say a lot of times, oh, I know Jesus. They may know who he is, they may know him intellectually, but they don't know him in a personal relationship. As Jesus said in, in, in Matthew 7, verse 23 through 24, he says, I don't know you. Well, wait a minute, we did this in your name, we did this. I don't know you. In terms of a personal relationship. You can have Jesus, uh, the, a knowledge of Jesus and still be lost. And then Jesus tells Satan, be quiet. In the, in the King James Version, it says, hold thy peace, which literally means be muzzled, be muzzled. And Jesus would use the same words when he was still in the storm in, in Mark 4, 39, verse 26. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. So the demon tried one last attack by, you know, convulsing the, the, the man, but then this, the demon had to submit to the authority of God uh, his servant, and then the demon came out. Verse 27. Then they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For, for with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. The people in the synagogue, they were amazed. They were blown away. They realized that something new had it was, was happening right in front of them. A new doctrine and a new power. And our Lord's words and works must always go together. Verse 28. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. The people just kept on talking about the things that Jesus did, about the things Jesus, you know, said. And his fame just began to spread all throughout the land. Verses 29 through 31. Now, as soon as they had come, uh, had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and immediately the fever left and she served him. She served them. After Jesus leaves the synagogue, they all went to Peter's house for Sabbath dinner. When they get to Peter's house, the mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, she's sick with fever. The Lord takes her by the hand he raises her up and the fever is immediately gone. And what does it say that she did? She served him. She served him. You see, she shows her thanks by serving Christ. You know, and I think when you truly understand and are aware of what God has done for you through Jesus Christ, you want to thank him for it. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you for, for cleansing my, my record and, and giving me a new life. And Lord, I want to thank you. One of the best ways is through serving him. And that's what Peter's mother-in-law did. Verse 32 and 34. Through 34. And at evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. Uh, demon and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and he cast out many demons and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. So what happens now after Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law? Well, the whole town hears about it. They all show up at Peter's door. They brought all of the sick and all of the afflicted and all the demon-possessed, but it says Jesus healed them all. The Greek word indicates that they kept on bringing people to him, nonstop. 
Satan can cause physical affliction, but not all sickness is called by Satan. We see the, 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 the division here to show, again, that, that Satan can cause physical affliction, but not all sickness is caused by demonic power. Notice he did not allow, Jesus didn't allow the demons to speak because they knew him. But you see, his messianic nature wasn't ready to be made known yet to the people. His time hadn't come yet, so he wanted them to, to not say anything. Verse 35 through 39. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Verse 39. Uh, Oh, but he said to them in verse 38, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Here we see Jesus now alone in prayer. And think of what he had just done. He had been, he had been healing, you know, healing the sick. He'd been, you know, de- delivering those of demons. He had probably gotten to bed late that night. It says he got up long before daylight probably between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., which was the early part of, of the last watch. But notice that, that, again, he had a long day of ministry. And this is how it's ending. I mean, he just, the daytime, he was, he was doing all these things, but now he's, he's, he's late into the night, he's doing all the, he's ministering to these people, but it didn't keep him from his time with the Father. He still made time to rejuvenate himself, to spend time in prayer with the Father. It's no wonder Jesus had such authority and power. Because of his prayer life, it was so disciplined. Even though he had a long and exhausting days of of, of ministry, he needed to seek his Father to be refreshed. What do a lot of Christians do? Oh, they head for the couch. I'll have a glass of wine or are you just going to veg out? We need to pray. We need to pray more. But do we? Jesus did not let the demands of ministry rob him of the time that he needed to be with his father to renew his strength. Verse 40 through 45 as we close. Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. However, he went out and he began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places and they came to him from every direction. We can understand the Lord's concern for a feverish woman and touching her, lifting her up and and healing a feverish woman. But to meet and to touch a leper, that's totally something else. See, leprosy was 100% incurable in that day. And for somebody to touch a leper in that day made you unclean and undefiled and you couldn't go to worship until you were cleansed. And a leper, you were to keep your distance from a leper and they were to call out, leper, leper, as they went through a crowd. The people had to to separate so that they weren't touched and, and defiled by a leper. 
But this man knew that Jesus was able to heal him. Just wasn't sure if Jesus was willing to. Leprosy is a type of sin in the Bible. Because leprosy like sin, leprosy goes deeper than sin. Leprosy spreads, leprosy defiles, and it isolates. And it renders things fit only for the fire. If somebody was a leper and they were wearing clothing, it was only good to be burned. It could only be burned. Anyone who has ever trusted, or I should say anyone who has never trusted Jesus Christ is spiritually in worse shape than this man was physically. But Jesus had compassion on the man and he healed him. And he did it with his touch and he did it with his word. Just like the fever left immediately, it says the leprosy was gone immediately. And for reasons already mentioned, Jesus commanded the man not to tell everybody. What he was supposed to do was go to the priest, follow their instructions so that he might be declared clean and receive, be, be received back into the social community as well as the religious community. You see, he had to go back and the priest would examine him and say, okay, you have no more symptoms. You have no more evidence of, of leprosy. So, you know, you can get back to the normal life. But the man didn't do what he was asked to do. Jesus told this man, don't say anything to anybody. But he told everybody. And it's amazing how Jesus says, don't, don't do something and we do it. But then when he says, do something, we don't do it. We seem to do the opposite. So in closing, we should learn some important lessons from this, this first chapter. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came as a servant... He came here to be a servant, not to be served. Then servant, a servant is the highest of all callings. We're never more like Jesus than when we're serving others. Secondly, God shares his authority with his servants. Only those who are under authority have the right to exercise authority. And lastly, if you're going to be a servant, then we have to, be, we have, to have compassion why? Because people will come to you for help and rarely ask if it's a convenient time. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Getting that call late at night or when you're in the busiest. And you just, you know, you just, oh man, what timing. Well, you know what? They, they need to talk. And I remember early in, in, in my years of ministry, I remember getting calls at one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning. Some guy wants to kill his wife. Some guy's got a gun in his hand and he's ready to commit suicide. And I have to talk to him and I pray with him and I give him God's word. But, you know, like I said, in the least opportune times, but again, that's part of, of, of being there for, for others and, and serving Christ. People's lives, they're, they're not just nine to five. They have disasters all day long, all night long, in the, in, the, in the middle of the night. Yet it's such a, priv what a privilege it is to follow in Christ's footsteps and to meet the needs of others by being one of God's compassionate service, servants and hopefully learning later on that you ministered to them. And they came to the saving grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you so much for this awesome chapter. It's an exciting chapter, Lord. Father, we see the busyness of Christ. We see his constant servanthood. 
going from one place to another, ministering from one to to hundreds, God. Saving souls, healing sicknesses, God. Delivering those who are possessed. Calling people to his service, God. And Lord, may we be like Christ in these examples, Lord. Being compassionate. God, being obedient. Following him immediately when he calls us, Lord. To come when he calls us and to go when he sends us, Lord. Bless your people this morning, Lord. Have your hand upon them, Father. And and may we start off this new year, God. Busy for Christ. Ministering to others, God. May you have your way with us, Lord. May we recognize what a blessing and a privilege it is to serve you, Lord. God, to hear your call and to know that we are yours, God. So, Lord, may you protect my brothers and sisters, Lord, from disease and from harm. And, Father, we do pray for those that are sick this morning, for those that are in hospitals and homes, God, for those who have lost loved ones, Lord. May we have that compassion. May we hurt with them, Lord. May we rejoice with them. And, Father, I thank you for the offering that um, we're about to receive, Lord. We thank you for your generosity, God. We thank you for those that are faithful to you and give to you that which you have first given to them. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, the offering box, that's outside. Again, for those who feel led to, be, uh, to, to give, it's out there and, you know, as God leads you. Uh, as always, I encourage you to come back tonight, 6.30, as we... Continue our study in the Psalms, Psalm 145, and the Psalm is praising God's majesty and his love. God bless you guys.